Since we're part of the Prince George family gathered, and uh, some of you may have heard that there are go some going to Israel, to the Holy Land on a pilgrimage, and it'd be a great time to, just for us to pray about that, but there are 38 uh, members of our church family are all leaving tomorrow, and we'll be gone for about 12 nights. Uh, um, Elle and I are the trip leaders, and Gary and Sue are, con are pseudo co-leaders uh, with us, and then uh, 34 other members of this wonderful church family are, are making this trip, some of you who are in here. Uh, if, if you want to, we didn't, um, every vestry member, every staff member has a list of the 38 who are going, so if you were curious and said, well, who is it? You, you could ask any of them. I'm sure they'd be happy to give you a copy of that. So let's pray for that group that's going to be on, on the road. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for the invitation to your homeland. Thank you for uh, this pilgrimage. Uh, we come not as tourists, but as pilgrims uh, to your land to learn, to grow, to enjoy uh, the apostles' teaching, uh, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Grant us safe travels and a safe return. Grant us good health while we are away. And Lord, for all of our families who will remain here and for our church family who will be here, watch over them and keep them safe. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Ryan, I don't know if you can say anything about this particular uh, picture. Just shout it from the back and explain uh, since you're the one that uncovered it. Yeah. Um, this is called the deposition or the descent from the cross. Um, the figures most relevant are the, the one kind of holding Jesus with the red cap, that's Nicodemus. He's left uh, the um, He's right behind Jesus holding him on the arms. And then to the right, um, in the very well-embroidered gold, is Joseph Arimathea. He's um, rich. Uh, the, one who's kind of swooning um, is uh, the Virgin Mary, Jesus' mother. And that's kind of, it's become a bit of a trope in art. Uh, the fainting or the swooning of the Virgin just kind of overcome with grief and her collapsing into um, St. John the Evangelist's arms. That's St. John in the red there on the left. So Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea as the two Roman uh, folks tonight. Um, this is one of the, the many depictions of Jesus being taken down from the cross in preparation for burial. Well done, and thank you. So remember the title of our journey on Wednesdays during Lent, uh, under the heading of Brooding on the Cross, which we're enjoying on Sunday as well. Uh, the, our Wednesday journey is about faces in the crowd. And last week we saw Peter's and Judas's faces in the crowd. Um, just uh, we're reflecting on some, Ryan's teaching last week and just thinking about Judas who was the one who never was willing to let go and let God. Uh, he would not let go of, of his personal control and let God be in control of his life. Um, he would not let God be God and Judas be um, uh, not be God. And I was thinking even until Judas's death, he wanted to be so in control he even took his own life instead of leaving that to the Lord as we are um, taught to do. It was, that's being in control, an extraordinary selfish act. And we contrasted that with Peter who almost blew it as badly as Judas. I mean, Peter denied that he had any association with Jesus. 
He did not do it once, not twice, but three times. But it's also Peter, as Ryan was showing us, that gives up control and surrenders his life to Jesus. Uh, that impetuous, in unpredictable, erratic, blustering. Did you call him Gary last week at one point? <laughs> not quite. <laughs> Pete, blustering Peter becomes Peter the rock. The rock. Uh, what, what a transformation. So that pronouncement by the Lord uh, is a blessing that ultimately comes to fulfillment. And so we had metamorphosis, didn't we? And Ryan reminded us of that uh, wonderful uh, Greek root word uh, that uh, means transformation. And we're looking at these faces in the crowd, especially to consider uh, the change in these people's lives because of the impact of Jesus on their lives. Tonight, we don't have a study in contrast again, Peter and Judas. Tonight, we have two, I want to call them noble men, uh, Pharisees, uh, men of the great Sanhedrin, uh, who think and act alike, have a similar conviction, and they themselves meet each other at the cross to do their business. Um, these are the two men and the women at the foot of the cross, they're about the only ones left, as we see even in the picture, as well as John, the beloved disciple. Um, and there's not much that can be done at this stage. Uh, their savior, their healer, their rabbi, their friend is dead. And he's dead as a doornail. He is dead. Let's start with a couple of prayers from our morning, our daily office. Um, just to help us move to the foot of the cross. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to, to the knowledge of you for the honor of your name. Amen. And another, another lovely prayer. Uh, from uh, the daily office. O God, our King, by the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the first day of the week, you conquered sin, put death to flight, and gave us the hope of everlasting life. Redeem all our days by this victory. Sounds like a prayer for transformation. Redeem all our days by this victory. Forgive our sins, banish our fears, Make us bold to praise you and bold to do your will and steal us to wait for the consummation of your kingdom on the last great day through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Faces in the crowd. Here's just a, a, a review and a reminder of where we've been and where we're heading. So tonight, uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And next week, uh, we have uh, Kate Brown, our um, our youth and family minister who also has her master's in divinity. Uh, so we're raising her up as another one of our teachers, if you will. And she's going to reflect on the Marys who uh, uh, meet Jesus at the foot of the cross. And then following that, uh, later in March, John the Beloved, another uh, who is at the foot of the cross, and the story of Simon of Cyrene, uh, or Cyrene. And then finally, on the, our last night before we enter into Holy Week, uh, we'll consider the centurion 
Remember, he's the one who witnessed all these events on Golgotha, on Calvary, and he is the one who is moved to declare truly this was the Son of God by the actions he witnessed from the cross. So uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, it becomes clear in the scriptures that they are members of the Sanhedrin. And simply let's just uh, get all these pieces, all these puzzle pieces on, on the board and just to a- answer the question, who were the Sanhedrin? Well, there were the Sanhedrin in a number of the cities of, of, the, of the Jewish, uh, of the country of Israel. There were a number of Sanhedrin usually composed of about a dozen members, but then there was what was called the Great Sanhedrin, and they are located in Jerusalem, and they are the seat of power, and they are the seat of authority. Just consider when Jesus sets his face and goes up to Jerusalem, he he is confronting the the political power of Rome. He's confronting the spiritual, theological power of the Jewish people. He's confronting the economic powers of that world in Jerusalem, the center of that country. And um, the, the, uh, the great Sanhedrin represent that confrontation with this most serious power. Just to get an idea of how powerful they were um, and how much they are uh, acknowledged in the New Testament. They're mentioned 22 times in the New Testament, especially, I think, maybe always, they're in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. Um, they acted as the supreme court of the land. Um, they uh, took any appeals from the cases from the lower courts uh, that uh, uh, merited appeal, and their final decision was, their, was the final decision. They could try the king. They had that kind of authority. They could even extend the boundaries of the temple, the, the Holy of Holies, the Temple Mount, uh, and the temple itself. Only then they could approve any uh, change to the actual facility itself. And one could simply understand all questions of law were decided there and they were final. And just in a summary fashion, um, this comment, um, by the end of the second temple period, remember the first temple is built by Solomon. The second temple, uh, it is destroyed in 586 B.C. It's there for almost 500 years. The second temple is built uh, in the early 500s. And so... It's called the Second Temple Period from then until the days of Jesus. Uh, The Second Temple Period ends in 70 A.D., not too long after the crucifixion of Jesus, when Jerusalem is again raised uh, by the Roman armies. So uh, this is speaking of by the end of the Second Temple Period, it's that first century window in which Jesus was living and the early church was being birthed. The Sanhedrin reached its pinnacle of importance legislating all aspects of Jewish religious and political life within the parameters laid down by biblical and rabbinic tradition. So I simply just to get get an understanding of where Joseph and where Nicodemus, um, where they are rooted. Uh, They are are part of the great Sanhedrin. Uh, They are are powerful authorities and they are wealthy and they are rich. And um, they would be folks who had a home in Debbie Doo and another home in Charlotte, North Carolina, or Atlanta, or wherever you want to put it. But they, these are people who have influence and power, and they have a lot at stake for social standing, acceptance among their own peers, and so on and so forth. There's a lot at stake here. 
we honor Joseph of Arimathea. I, I'm not sure why Nicodemus is not in our calendar. I don't, we don't, we, we all, we among the Prince George family don't pay a whole lot of, of attention to saints days, but we have a wonderful saints calendar in our uh, Anglican tradition. And uh, a Joseph of Arimathea, but not Nicodemus have a saints day. I don't quite get that. In the Roman church, they are both recognized on, a, uh, on their own day. But uh, this is a, a, one of the readings for Joseph of Arimathea's, and I'd love to say in Nicodemus's day, um, is, um, uh, the, is a passage from Proverbs, and it concludes with this verse. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. And that's, that's the proverb, the, the selection that is put before us on Joseph's day. And uh, let's, let us say for Nicodemus as well. Joseph, um, we hear of him in all four Gospels, in only one place in all four Gospels. I'm sorry, in only one place in three of the Gospels. In Matthew, in Mark, and Luke, at the end of the story of Jesus' life. But uh, each one of them gives us a little bit of nugget of understanding who these individuals are, and a nugget about Joseph uh, in each of these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So this is from the 27th chapter of Matthew. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea. How lovely. Scripture can be so authentic and so, um, so real. Um, he's always been identified as Joseph of Arimathea because Joseph is such a common name. And so how lovely that whenever he's referenced, he's referenced, well, it's Joseph of Arimathea. You know, it's Joseph who lives in Georgetown, Joseph of Charleston. This is Joseph of Arimathea. So thank you, Gospels. When it was evening, there's no ambiguity about which Joseph this is. There was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who also was a disciple of Jesus. So uh, just interesting enough, he has had an encounter with the risen Lord and with, with, the, uh, with the living Lord, and uh, he is considered as a disciple. We'll end on that note as well. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. These are high stakes uh, doing this sort of thing. He's exposing himself. He's being very vulnerable and uh, risking the abuse of the Sanhedrin, his colleagues, his friends, as well as the Roman government. Um, he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean <coughs> linen shroud. There is nothing casual or careless about the love this man shows to this broken, shattered, you know, bloodied body uh, in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb. So this belongs to him. He's giving it up for Jesus. And it's a new tomb, never been used before. Tombs like this are all over Israel because of the, all that limestone rock that is here, there, everywhere. And so uh, tombs were a, were a means, especially for the wealthy, to, uh, to put their deceased uh, in a cave. Uh, we'll say a little more about that. I thought you might be interested in this in a minute. Let's look at Mark as well. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, so we know it's the same Joseph, a respected member of the council. 
The council is the same heaven. That's my ring, so I thought it was my phone. It's not on me. Someone else has the same ring. Carol, you have the same ring as I? Okay. If mine ever rings in church, I'm going to say, Carol, turn your phone on. How embarrassing. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council of the Sanhedrin, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. Just give you a sense of his heart. Also looking for the kingdom of God. This was a man on his own kind of pilgrimage, his own spiritual journey. He took courage. One little word, but all that we talked about already behind that in terms of he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Wow. Way to go, Joseph of Arimathea. Risking his reputation, risking his acceptance among his peers, risking the abuse of the Roman government, and he does it. Here's Luke. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. (laughs) He was a member of the council. Got it confirmed. A good and righteous man. Those are such high compliments. I would love to be called that someday in my life. Say, he was a good and righteous fellow. Uh, wouldn't you like to be called a good and righteous woman? He was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. So he had opposed what the Sanhedrin had ruled on about the execution of Jesus, about what, what had been decided in those uh, just a few hours before. He was looking for the kingdom of God. So he, he's got this identity as somebody who is a, he's a, a seeker after the kingdom. He's a seeker of the Lord. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. I thought we'd have just a little digression here, maybe for, for, for visual purposes, to consider what uh, that cave mine looked, at, looked like. This is one possibility of Jesus' actual burial site. Um, it's, uh, it, it may not be his actual burial site, but it's called the Garden Tomb, um, and it's just outside the gates in Jerusalem, and there's a hill nearby where he could have been crucified, and it's in a very public area, and this Garden Tomb is owned by the English now, and so it's, it's never, it's, it still has the, uh, the landscape and the feeling of first century Jerusalem uh, outside the gates. Uh, rural, trees growing, uh, that sort of thing. And this is uh, actually uh, an entrance to the cave and kind of a little, if you will, peephole, uh, perhaps to, uh, as the body is decomposing, just to let some, you know, get some aeration there. But uh, it's, it's, a, it's pointed at as a possible place where Jesus may have been laid. And the, the inside of that cave, uh, part of it looks like this. And if I recall correctly, there's actually there's a shelf that's missing where the body would have been laid. But uh, this body would have been put in there. And this is what the wealthy were enabled to do. This sort of luxury, if you will, even in death. is The body would be put in there and it would be laid there to decompose, maybe for a couple of years. And there, in anticipation of once all the flesh had decomposed, um, that body would end up in a... In a Ossuary box. Ossuary, right? Ossuary. 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 I was saying fine earlier today, and then I've lost my syllables. Ossuary. Ossuary. Close enough. Um, And um, the the kind of interesting trivia thing, you say, well, how how big does an ossuary box have to be? Well, it had to be 
the length of the longest bone in your body, which would, what would be the longest bone in your body? The femur, right? From the knee to the ankle. And so ossuaries were about this length. And uh, what, a, what a cave would look like in time would be uh, many members of the family whose bodies had been laid in the tomb, the rock rolled over it, the rock is not sealing it permanently, but temporarily. Once, at some point, the rock would be rolled back, and what was left would be then put into these ossuary boxes, and they, they would have beautiful, they could have very elegant engravings on there, even as well as the person's name, and they'd be put in a niche like you see there, where there would be multiple bodies of the family that was put in there. That was very common in the Second Temple period, at the end of the Second Temple period, in Jerusalem. So uh, it kind of it fits with uh, this sense that here is Joseph, he is wealthy, he has his own cave for burial one day for him and his family, and he gives it to the Lord Jesus, he gives it away. And uh, that is where his anticipation was that that's probably what would happen to the body of Jesus few years from now, and it would have been put in the ossuary and perhaps left there. Now that's Joseph. We only encounter him at the end of each gospel in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Joseph of Arimathea. Isn't it lovely? They declare every time. It's not, can't be any other Joseph. It's, no, it's Joseph of Arimathea, the wealthy and man, a member of the council that we learned a little bit about just by one or two, three words of character a characterization about him. He's good, he's righteous, he's courageous, he's bold, um, and he's a follower of the Lord Jesus. Um, Nicodemus is our other colleague tonight that we are reflecting on, and we have uh, Nicodemus only shows up in the fourth gospel. He only shows up in the gospel of John, and he shows up in three places, and you are familiar with them. Um, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. So we first hear about him really before his transformation, if you will. I, I want to read a portion of that. Actually, we'll get to that in a minute. Well, in, in very much a minute. Uh, there's another encounter that Nicodemus has in the seventh chapter, John. He speaks up at the meeting of the Sanhedrin uh, in defense of Jesus, and he gets uh, slammed down. And then finally, According to John, not only was Joseph of Arimathea there at the, uh, at the day of Jesus' death, um, Nicodemus joins him, and together uh, they lovingly take the body and prepare the body for burial. So here, here's the first. Uh, we just have, can touch base at this briefly, but this is the third chapter of John. Such a familiar passage. One reason it's so familiar Maybe because you were in church on Sunday, and God incidentally, uh, uh, prior to reflecting on this on Wednesday, we had the gospel story this past Sunday of Nicodemus. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Uh, the Sanhedrin were all Pharisees, as far as I know. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, came to Jesus by night, obviously under the cover of darkness, but also something wonderful and kind of, he's coming out of the dark. He's coming towards the light. There's something quite beautiful about that. It's the light, uh, seeing uh, the light of God in the face of Jesus. Um, at rule of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. He's heard him preaching and teaching, 
Uh, this is taking place in Jerusalem, Jesus' uh, first visit there. And uh, Nicodemus has heard him, and he has been struck uh, by, by, by the authority and power of Jesus' words. Perhaps he's also witnessed a, a healing or two. We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. And so Jesus engages him with this wonderful invitation, you know, uh, it, it's, it's even more uh, to, to really take this in all its fullness. You, you, you must be born again. And it kind of throws Nicodemus at first uh, that I don't think he's a little bit stupid because he said, well, how can a person enter in a second womb? That, that's simply a rabbin, there's a rabbinic kind of dialogue going on here. And he sort, of, he sort of gives an extreme, an extreme, well, you can't enter into a woman's womb a second time and be born again. I know that's not the answer. What, what is your answer? And so uh, Jesus talks about uh, being born again, same as being born from above, and that uh, it's uh, related to uh, the Spirit. That word that Ryan and Gary and I keep on trying to elevate, the Spirit with a capital S, the Holy Spirit, that somehow we have to allow the Holy Spirit to have access to our hearts to enable transformation and then enable transformation that continues uh, from that point forward. You know, we, we all um, may point to a time of when we did not believe and we came to faith and we could even call that, that was our conversion. But what that really is, is the first experience of conversions that will take place through the whole rest of our lives. That we'll continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding of the Lord, of His love, of his discipline, of his call upon our lives, the call to ministry, it just, it just continues to, I, I, I have a new understanding of what I am to be as a follower of Jesus. And so how wonderful that once that door of conversion is open, we, uh, now we are enabled to continue the journey of conversions, transformations, metamorphoses over and over again um, as we move further and further up into the kingdom. C.S. Lewis with his wonderful further up and further in as we grow in the kingdom. So we have this passage um, in, um, in early John about Nicodemus. We have another passage in the seventh chapter. Uh, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before, we know that. We heard the story, the encounter, the invitation to be born from above, to seek, uh, seek the Spirit, and who was one, was one of them. The them is the council, the Sanhedrin. He's one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? That is because for the whole of chapter 7, uh, Jesus is, being, um, is creating controversy in Jerusalem. And uh, there, are, uh, there is conflict back and forth. I'm going to just read one passage of that for example. When they heard these words from Jesus, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. This is the seventh chapter. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Uh, shows how much they know. Um, no, the Christ isn't to come from Galilee. He's to come from Bethlehem. But Jesus' ministry is inaugurated in the Galilee. And that's where he's coming from. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? 
So there was a division. See, we know a whole lot more of this background and story than they do at this point. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, this is the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin leaders, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? How have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Well, actually, we know two that have. Joseph has and Nicodemus has. Um, but this crowd does not know the law. That, but this crowd that does not know the law is a curse. So then Nicodemus speaks up in Jesus' defense is what we have here. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So give the guy a break. Let, you know, we're jumping to conclusions. Uh, you're, you're out of control. And uh, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Um, are you from Andrews, South Carolina? <laughs> Up in my part of the woods where I Rock Hill, are you from Gaffney? They would say, no offense, anybody from Andrews or Gaffney, this is just snobbery venting. Uh, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And then we have the wonderful end of the story. And we know that between chapter 3 and chapter 7 and chapter 19, as those three years of Jesus' life has unfolded, Nicodemus has experienced some sort of wonderful transformation. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, that we know it's the right Joseph we got here, uh, all four Gospels, right? Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. It's hard to imagine the societal pressure upon these individuals taking a stand in opposition to the, to the momentum of the culture. They asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. Yeah, we remember that now came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. That's a lot of burial preparation. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Rich Jews and Jews who live in that Jerusalem area especially. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. You saw a picture of what's called the garden tomb. There's a garden there, there's a tomb. Uh, we'll see that, some of us, in just a couple of weeks. Now, in the place, the preferred place, by the way, where we believe Golgotha is, is, is inside another, uh, just outside another set of walls within Jerusalem, and it's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre now. There is a magnificent, ancient structure built over the burial site, the crucifixion site and burial site of Jesus. So you have to go into this massive, um, massive edifice to, uh, to go to, uh, to approach Golgotha. The, the rock itself is built within the church and then to also go to the burial cave where they believe Jesus was buried. And uh, one of these two sites are probably the exact correct one where he was not only buried, but where he rose from the dead. He was crucified there. Near there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. 
and we had that long silence through uh, Sabbath, through Saturday, waiting for Sunday morning and Sunday sun sunrise. I, I, I encountered this quotation uh, on the website, and I thought it was well worth sharing. It's from Pope Benedict VI. He said he observed the quantity, 75 pounds, remember, of the bomb is extraordinary and exceeds all normal proportions, that is, for a burial. And then uh, he concludes, this is a royal burial. Isn't it lovely that Nicodemus and Joseph treat this man who has been rejected, betrayed, lived in poverty, never owned a home, never owned property, uh, never built any mighty Herodian fortresses, and uh, they bury him as if he is royalty. And he is, of course. And what a faith that goes that deep and that far. Before his resurrection, they are honoring him and treating him as he deserves. What a paradise. When Nicodemus encounters Jesus, comes to him at night, or we might say out of the night, he comes out of the darkness towards the light. Um, may that be... May, may, that's been all of our stories as we've come from the darkness of our culture into the light of the Lord's truth and light and love. This is how that encounter ends with Nicodemus. Uh, scripture doesn't quite break it up in the best of places. This is actually, uh, some believe this is the absolute end of the conversation uh, with the Lord Jesus. We all know it so well. It's John 3.16. That's how it ends. One could say, so Nicodemus and the ones who were gathered around Nicodemus and Jesus were the first ones, Nicodemus was the first one to ever hear these words from Jesus. Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Nicodemus, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. <coughs> wow. We've been enjoying Kelly Capick. Um, I'm going to end on this note. Uh, enjoying Kelly Capick. Uh, he was actually last year's Canuga Renewal Conference keynoter. And we, uh, we, uh, we are now reading his book on the Wednesday morning group called The Inklings. The men have been reading Kelly Capick's book which has a wonderful title and part of the book, this is a theme that carries through the book, The God Who Gives, The God Who Gives. And um, he writes this about this story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus's last appearance in the Gospel of John describes a man engaged in one of the most beautiful acts of generosity recorded in scripture. I have a little more to add to that from his uh, thoughts on this, from his book. He goes on, Jesus has been crucified and all his friends have fled. Nothing is clear at this point, but Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea at great personal risk seek to care for the body of their crucified Lord. In other words, he goes on, Nicodemus had received God's gift 
and he was transformed by it. Our operative word for these Wednesdays in Lent and faces in the crowd, he was metamorphosized by it. The first man ever to hear the message of John 3.16, he points out, eventually understood it and experienced the transforming power of the gospel. We see it in the 75 pounds of spices which amounted to extravagance in the extreme for a Jewish burial. And then a final paragraph, final chapter, and final, final paragraph of this chapter, and uh, something for you and for me as well. The greatest risk of faith is that it might not be true. That calls for courage. To truly believe Jesus and believe it matters. To believe that we will be saved. Nicodemus believed. And yet look at the Lord he believed in. He was dead. Greater than even his Aaron in the night, thinking back to chapter 3, coming to him in the night, greater than even his errand in the night, Nicodemus now appears in a far darker place. He is called to believe even as he is burying the dead body of Jesus. And he does believe. The gift of faith shines in the darkness even before Easter morning. And yet, this Messiah is not overcome by death, but he overcomes it. He rises. He lives. And we now live in him by faith. Take courage. The object of your faith is true. In him we are healed. In him we are forgiven. This is the collect of the day for Joseph's feast day on August 1st. Uh, let it be Nicodemus' colic for this night as well. Consider these wonderful words highlighted in red. Merciful God, whose servant Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, with reverence and godly fear, did prepare the body of our Lord and Savior for burial and did lay it in his own tomb. Grant to us, your faithful people, grace and courage to love and serve Jesus with sincere devotion all the days of our life. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. We have a... Uh, we have a few minutes left for questions, and I want to invite you to, if you have questions left over from last week about Peter and Judas, uh, I may defer to the back of the room on the, uh, the, the teacher from last week or not, or uh, questions about what we've reflected on tonight. Thoughts, comments, a postscript from one of you wise persons? Pre-resurrection, you know, we have the benefit of being, you know, post-resurrection Christian. Pre-resurrection, these two men are giving us examples of people uh, who, you know, in my, from my perspective, have encountered the resurrected Jesus. His power clearly was, he was just as powerful you know, pre-resurrection as he was, as he is today in resurrection. It's a fascinating thought. It is a fascinating thought. Yeah. 
I like their faith that sees even through death. I mean, yeah. that they, uh, they know this is important, what they're doing. They know it's important to treat this body properly. This body is not going to be thrown on the, on the trash heap. This body is not going to be left to the dogs to be eaten. This body is not going to be left on the cross uh, for people to look at it for three days and go by and ridicule it. Yeah. Uh, uh, it uh, they go to Pilate. They make something happen. And uh, bravo for Nicodemus and for Joseph of Arimathea. <laughs> Carol. I've always thought the story of Nicodemus was, part of it was that he went to see Jesus at night to question him because he didn't want others to see him. He didn't want Absolutely. to know that he had that faith, that little bit of faith. No, I, I think he, he, uh, he went at great personal risk. Uh, you know, when you take a stand against, I, I, I had this illustration in my, in my thoughts, and I, I was hesitant to use it, but I, I was so proud of him not to be polarizing, and not to, but, but uh, this, so I hope it won't be. But, uh, but uh, it, it's very costly when you take a stand. And I was thinking, it made me just immediately think of uh, Gary's good friend, Tom Rice, who was a, a, a congressman, and he took a stand, he took a stand that he believed in, and it cost him his election. That's the kind of thing that Nicodemus and Joseph are risking. Uh, they may have well have been expelled from the Sanhedrin for these acts. They may have well have been uh, humiliated. Um, we don't know any more about them, but I, I, I expect they're part of that early Christian congregation in Jerusalem. And uh, they're humble man, men, they're, and, and they simply enter into the life of Christ uh, in that new community post-Pentecost. Yes, Julie. I have heard that the herbs that they wrapped Jesus' body in were totaled, and the 75 pounds totaled, they valued about $75,000. And I mean, it was a lot. They, were, they loved him <clears throat> extravagantly. They did love him extravagantly, and, and yes. He just loved us. Thank you, Julie. And Ryan? I, I remember from commentary um, that. King Herod got 60 pounds. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's good. And Herod, I mean, that, that Herod was very uh, into himself, you might say. And probably took all sorts of measures to make his own burial very extravagant. Well said. I also, I never really put together, I don't think, that um, Nicodemus and Joseph would have been I mean, present at the trial that they, in some sense, put Jesus on trial. Yeah. And they might be looking at each other and thinking, are we the only ones? Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, like, it's pretty clearly a travesty of justice, this trial. So he's innocent. And it's, I, I, I just, yes. Yeah. Uh, you remind me of, of another thought. Simply the fact that we know Joseph of Arimathea, if you will, uh, well, through all three Gospels and the fourth Gospel. And we know Nicodemus through three stories in the fourth Gospel. Uh, by name, these individuals, uh, speaks to me of, as these things were written down a few, just a few decades later. Uh, it's because these men were still part of the community of faith. And so, you know, Joseph Arimathea and our friend Nicodemus, our, our brother in Christ. And that's why the names are, you know, it's, uh, those names, they've not been forgotten because they're still part of their community. I like to think that. We don't know that. Good thoughts. Well, we're going to end this evening with Compline. Um, 
Gary, we were reflecting a little bit uh, earlier this week about, uh, yes, we could do it in here. Um, uh, it, our sense is it's just such a sacred space to worship over there. And um, um, it's, we all enjoy it. And it's beautiful in there at night. And, um, so we thought it's worth the five minute trek uh, to, to go up there. We get to stretch our limbs anyway a little bit when we, it doesn't take us long to get there and we still are out by seven. So um, we're going to head to the church now. Um, we'll see you there for conference. Thank you. We try to airdrop me that file.